Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Sports and Torts Party. Another week is here, another great episode last week with Jeff Frost, who dropped all sorts of great business and marketing knowledge on us. So if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to that, do yourself a favor, go back and listen. You know, I don't, I don't like to play favorites here, but I did have a few listeners tell me that last week's episode was one of the best ones yet. So as they say, F-W-I-W. Well, to back that up, we have another great one today. One of my biggest regrets with this podcast so far is that it has taken me 60 episodes to get today's guests on the show. This is a guy that helped me through law school with his friendship. He's a groomsman in my wedding and just an all-around genuine top-notch guy and lawyer. My man stays busy on soccer fields, in courtrooms defending medical malpractice cases, in the stands, Atlanta Falcons games, and hitting the weights at the gym. But today, we have him for an hour. He's with us today. That is right. Brian Mathis in the house. My man, what is up? What's up, man? Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here today. I can't believe it has taken 60 episodes to get me on here. Um, so greatly appreciate you allowing me to be here for, you know, this Torts and sports. That's I it. appreciate it. Hand in the air. My bad. Long overdue. We tried last year. And, we did. And, we did. And schedules you know, as they go get out of whack. And then days turn to months and months. It is. But we're here now. Uh, dude, 20 years we've known each other. We just we just kind of did that math today. It's freak. We look the same. We think the same. We talk the same. I mean. First week of law school, we got together and it's been nonstop since then. And the amount of stories that I could tell sitting here today, an hour would not justify. <laughs> and most of them aren't, uh, as they say, safe for work. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, I remember we met each other the first week. You know, that first week you kind of scope each other out, like who, who's who's this, who's that. But game recognizes game, dude. That's always, it. That's always, it. right? When I walked into first year law school, I was looking for who I was going to hang out with. I knew it was going to be a journey, and I said, let me let me look at who's going to be here today, and. You know, you popped up and you you were a double dog. You knew the campus. You knew the environment. And I said, this is a guy that I know that I can hang with for the rest of this time. Great. Tom Ludlam, of course, was right with us. Uh, Allison Warner, we met that yeah. first week. Uh, hitting the gym, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll, we'll get through the law school stuff, too. But uh, I look back so fondly at law school. And people that, that don't, I, I genuinely feel bad for. Yeah, I mean, I, I had an amazing experience at Georgia. You know, it was a big difference. I went to Vanderbilt for undergrad, and just being at a school that loved football, loved sports, and, you know, the environment was perfect for somebody that wanted something new other than Nashville or Atlanta. Nashville and uh, Athens, two pretty good cities. We'll, we'll, we'll give you the chance to compare those in a little bit. But when, I wanted, when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about we know each other for 20 years and saying how we can't be that old, well, I am that old because I was just telling you that today, May 2nd, is Isabella's 15th birthday. Uh, she just sent me a pic from the Department of Driver Services getting her learner's permit. So, <laughs> so watch out, Rose. Isabella Rose Stein is legally able to drive as a I remember when Dana was pregnant with Isabella, and I was like, holy cow, this is actually happening. We are growing up, and now she's 15? 15, 15, 15. So your girl's, what, seven and four, Se seven and three? Seven and three, about to turn four, and they are ruling the house. They, they are what drive me every single day. Girl dad, they're wrapped around your finger. I, I have a shirt that says girl dad that I wear proudly every time I go out. They are amazing girls, um, so close to me and my wife, um, and just have a, an amazing personality. So. I, I teased a little bit about how you spend your time on the soccer field. They're playing, you're, you're coaching, is that right? Yeah, I've been coaching. Um, I gave up coaching last year because I felt like I needed to, to wind it down a little bit. Um, but they are getting, they're both, at, one's at SSA right now, one's at Peachtree Road, but they're excelling, um, playing up in, in divisions and just loving soccer. I've enjoyed getting to see some of my old friends that I their daughters are on teams and I get to see them when I'm at the soccer fields um so it's, it's just been fun man they're having a blast and, and they love it that's so good I bet they're a little wizard running around too aren't they <laughs> you can be honest this is the treachery uh I will say my seven-year-old is is pretty amazing um and the three-year-old's right in her footsteps so they'll be they'll be they'll be superstars at some point now you played soccer at Parkview which I, I for, did for, for those that are around George, they know that's just a powerhouse high school. Um, how was it so good with Lilburn? Like what, ha what's going on in the water in Parkview that everyone, their sports teams is just ridiculous. So I just think that when 
individuals know that a team is recruited, that players – I mean, it's just like college. I mean, if, if players continue to go to the same places. And, you know, my senior year, I think we had – I mean, the, the, my junior year we had Josh Wolf, who is the starting forward for the national team. I had Jason Moore. Um, and so those guys are all MLS players. I think like 10 of the players on my team were all – ODP and all state and played got D1 scholarships. So it was just I mean it was just a powerhouse sports with baseball with football with track. Um, it's just I think it's something to water in Lilburn. Yeah, so we when 1997 which year you graduated high school as well, they beat us um, in baseball. So you were probably at that game perhaps we know each other then but <laughs> but but Parkview, I mean god dang man, good at everything. All right, so your soccer game, your your skill set versus your daughters. Talk, talk to me. Um, so I was a speed guy. Yeah. Um, my daughter's a footwork. She, uh, you know, we practice a lot with footwork, do a lot of skills training, agility. Um, she can just go around anybody. I will just outrun you. Um, so I, I <laughs> and didn't need, probably outwork you too. I, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't need the footwork. I would just outrun you every single time. So that was that was kind of my thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, we. It's fun teaching them what you know, and it's fun seeing the reaction when they're able to do the things on the field that you actually teach them. But you know, they're seven, so we're we're trying to let them figure out what they want to do and enjoy life, and not push them too hard. That's the key to it all, man. Let them enjoy it. Don't push it. Let them kind of find their way. So well, I'm excited to see how how the girls grow and become, you know, become. And, and your son's a little superstar in baseball. Yeah, he's doing baseball too. But it's the same thing, right? It's like you teach them, you show them, but then you got to step back at a certain age and be like, look, you got to figure this out on your own and love it for yourself. And that was one of the reasons I stopped coaching, just because I felt like I was getting too much into pursuing and making her do something versus just allowing her to do it. And so we kind of have a we we have a tradition at our house. At the end of the season, she reevaluates what she wants to do. She wants to play soccer, so be it. She wants to do gymnastics, whatever she wants to do. She decides, but you got to get through the season. Yeah, our rule is you got to do something, whether it's baseball, soccer, football, yeah. lacrosse, painting, singing, whatever. You got to do something. Yeah. My other rule with 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 my kids is. I'm never going to push them to go out and practice if they don't want to. But if they ask me, hey, do you want to go throw? Do you want to go? My answer is always yes. Yeah. Always yes. Sometimes we don't want to. We're tired, whatever. But if like they want to go do something, my daughter wants to go play volleyball. Yes. Someone wants to go throw. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a great that's a great rule. And I think that creates a sense of, you know, of you got to do what you got to do to be better. Um, at all times. So I, th I think that's fantastic. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, we kind of jumped into a lot of stuff as I knew we would because I can't help myself. But for those, <laughs> for those, those y'all out there that don't know you, name, you know, we know you went to Parkview, know you're from around here, but we know you got two kids in Hawaii, but yeah. who's Brian Mathis? So I grew up in Lilburn. You know, I was born in Atlanta um, at, at, back at Georgia Baptist back in the day. Unfortunately, that Hospital just went out of business last year, but grew up in Lilburn, um, played soccer, loved soccer, big soccer player. But then I went to Vanderbilt for undergrad, Georgia for law school, which is obviously when I met you. Um, and then I came back to Atlanta. Like I knew I was, I, I loved Atlanta. I'm an Atlanta through and through. I'm a Braves fan. I'm a Falcons fan. I'm a Hawks fan. Um, and I've just, this is who I am. I mean, Atlanta is kind of where I've been. Um, my mom raised me by herself and I've been blessed to, be at a great firm and have a great family. My wife works diligently. She's probably the hardest worker I've ever seen. She's at Coke, right? Um, well, she was at Coke, um, and now she's at another company. But let me tell you, talk about grinding. Um, she is the grinder of the family. Well, you are too, man. You're a hard worker. So your girls are seeing two very good examples of what it takes to you know, be successful. Yeah. Good for y'all. And, and we preach, you know, like we, we got to do what we got to do for what's right for the family. And they understand that. So we, we do our very best to make as much time as we can. But we also understand and they understand, you know, there's going to be times where mom and dad are out of town and doing stuff for trial or whatever the case. But um, yeah, so I'm a lawyer, um, love Atlanta Falcons, love the Braves, love the Hawks. Um, and, you know, my life is really built around the family and my law firm. Um, and that's it. I love it. Now, you mentioned Vanderbilt, Nashville. What a great city. College town for you to spend your four Holy years at. Holy cow. Me and you have gone back several <laughs> times to visit. Well, let me tell you, when I, first, when I first made the decision to go to Nashville, I was terrified. You can imagine a kid from Atlanta, never heard any country music, and, you know, you're you have the opportunity to go there and you think, eh, I don't know if I want to go there. It's got a lot of country music, but I had a buddy, um, Ainsley Battles, who played NFL for a while, but he went there to play football and he said, hey, Mathis, you should really um, 
think about going to Vandy. So I went up there for a tour, and let me tell you, I mean, you think you think Athens is beautiful. Um, the Vanderbilt campus is amazing. Um, so I had a fantastic experience there. But yeah, I go back now. One of my clients is out of Nashville now, so I uh, typically go back two or three times a year, and it's exploded. It's exploded. I mean, I mean it's, I think it's, it's Nash- a different kind of place. Yeah, Nashville. If I didn't live in Atlanta, I think Nashville would be my number two. I, I think so. You I know? think that's where I'd probably move as well. Yeah, but uh, the growth is, is crazy. So you went Nashville to Athens. Um, I don't think I ever asked you. Maybe I did back in the, in the day, but like, what was the decision like to go to, back to Athens, go to law school, all that kind of stuff? So I will say I was a very social person at Vanderbilt. No, 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 no. no. I, don't, I don't believe that for one second. So I remember having a conversation um, with myself and some of my friends who were juniors and sophomores, and I just thought to myself, if I stay here another three years, it probably won't bode well for my career moving forward. So I knew ultimately I wanted to go back to Georgia and practice. Atlanta is the place I wanted to be, so – why not, you know, one of the best schools that you can go to, which was, you know, University of Georgia for law school. And, you know, I would never regret that decision and going to Georgia. Fantastic school. Um, and then just the people that I met there were, were kind of the best or probably the best people that I've met in my whole life. Yeah, agreed. I mean, yeah, we were both still 21 years old. Yes. 20, yeah, 22, maybe starting law school right after college and both of us <laughs> kind of looked at it as an extension of college to a certain degree. It was um, 100% an extension. Yeah, for me it was it was the same uh same I was in the same city. A lot of my friends had graduated which was helpful. Um because I like you, you know, think that if I if all my friends were still there and it would have been a kid, much more of a continuation. That first year, man, you got to bust your ass, um, you got you got to get uh, locked in. It was first year was tough and I think the friends that you made that first year carried you through for the rest of the law school career. I mean, the people you studied with, the people you partied with, and I'll say, Josh, and and you know this more than I do, the group that we hung out with in school had the ability to turn it on when it was time to study. Um, And when it was time to go out and have a good time, we killed it. (laughs) Totally. And I think that that's that's what you have to find that group that can do that, if that's what you want. Like some people, they want to study 24-7, and that's fine. And and I'm sure it worked out well for them. We wanted to have a good little mix. And we found the, the crew that we could do that with. Um, the crew, the crew expanded over. It did expand. Over the years. It expanded over the years. But I was, you know, I was, I was thinking about stories that we actually tell. And the one that I remembered was, and y'all can fact check me on dates. Are you going to say Halloween? Yes. <laughs> that's one of the best stories. It's true. It's a true story. That's the, that's the best story for that. Maybe one of the best stories from law school. I want to hear you, how you remember it. I'll tell you how I remember it. Um. So I remember leading up to Halloween. So we were in this torts class, and there was um, an amazing professor there by the name of Professor Dupree. And contracts. Whoever, con- contracts. Whoever's been to Georgia remembers Professor Dupree. But, you know, just like law school, we had the Socratic method. And our little crew would typically sit with each other during each class. And, you know, we, we knew that there was only going to be one person called every class. So we kind of took the roulette every, every class to determine <laughs> – whether we were going to study for that day or not. So we had Halloween coming up and we all knew we were going to get, it it was going to be a night to remember. So we went out that night and I had actually studied and done all my work beforehand. And I think I left my bag in someone's car. (laughs) So we go out, we party till like, I mean, it had to be three or four in the morning. I have no idea where I slept that night. We roll into class. Everybody looked like hell. I mean, literally hats on, um, you know, everybody looked terrible and we all spread out, which is probably should have been the number one clue, um, for the professor. So we get into class and everybody's just banking on the fact that none of us get called on one out of 80%, one, one out of 80%. Um, and there's, I mean, there had to be 10 classes still left. So yeah. we were early on in the game. So I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, still feeling the night before and thinking to myself, I may have to go to the bathroom at any point to not make it through this class. Um, And I'm sweating and I feel like crap. And I'm sitting next to somebody that I've never sat (laughs) sat with before who probably doesn't like us. Um, And the next thing I know, 10 minutes in the class, I heard Mr. Mathis. Oh, oh, stomach drops. And heartbeat goes. If I didn't feel bad already, uh, the sweat starts pouring off. And I opened my book, which ended up not even being a torts book. It was the wrong book. <laughs> it was it, what of the books for my class. It was, a, it was like a criminal law book. But, you know, all the books look the same. They're all red. And I opened up the book, and she's like, Mr. Mathis, turn to page 24. And I'm looking at the girl beside me, and I'm like, 
pass me your damn book. Give me some help. <laughs> Give me some help. Pass me your book. And she grabs her book and pulls it closer to her. She's like, Mr. Mathis, Hater. read the first page. Now the book's upside down. I can't read anything. And finally, she's like, Mr. Mathis, come see me after class. And the whole group that was out with us the night before just bust out <laughs> laughing. That's exactly how I remember it. Because we, we were banking on one person being called, not us. And then she did this rapid fire Friday. Yes. Which meant that she was going to call multiple people. Multiple people. And your name went first. We're like, oh, crap. Here we go. And, and she got so frustrated with your inability to answer a question. I think she said, Mr. Mathis, can you just tell me the first word <laughs> of the name of this case? Just the first word. You're like, no, ma'am, I can't. Because I don't even have the right book. Have the book. Uh, so, so I got so so. I went to her after class, and she said, "I knew that your crew was going out that night." And she said, "I was going to call on every single one of you that day, and you were number one." And so, I said, "I'm I'm really sorry." So those are the lessons that stick with you, though. Well, one hundred percent. Because Be we were we were prepared yeah. every single class for the rest of our time. One hundred percent. And I bet you've never showed up to a deposition or a trial not prepared. Never. So that's what you learn from law school. And it takes a moment like that that we can laugh about twenty years later. But in real time, that's heat. It was that was heat. It was more than heat. Yeah, it was heat. <laughs> um, and I just I vividly remember all of y'all who were also with me that night, which was about ten of y'all. Just dying laughing, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't say anything. Oh, I just love it that if we remember it exactly the same. Tom would probably remember the same too. So, what's your advice if, if someone is twenty two years old, twenty five years old, starting law school? Like, what's your advice to them about how how you think they should approach the process? I would say that you have to prepare for law school as if you're preparing for your career. I mean, law school will determine your first job what jobs you get, what career you're going to follow. So I would take it seriously. But at the same time, understand that it's likely the last time you're going to be in school. It's likely the last time you're going to be on a college campus. And it's likely the last time that you're going to have summer breaks and Thanksgiving breaks and all these different things before you become a lawyer when it doesn't stop. So I would say enjoy the time, but take it extremely seriously. Um, so you can prepare yourself for the future and set yourself up and your family up for whatever you want to do. But it's, it's not a time to just say, I'm, I'm just going to work full time. You got to enjoy it. Um, you got to have friends that you care about because those friends, I mean, me and Eve have been friends forever. And the, the friends that we have, regardless of where they are now, North Carolina, um, Florida, we're still all friends and we still talk. We can still get together and time doesn't really um, separate us. Totally well said, man. That's that's dropping the knowledge. That's it. People need to hear that. And the connections that you make. I mean, think about the cases you've gotten. I mean, you've referred cases to, you know, like, like that's how business is done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 100 um, percent. I mean, you, you got to know the people and you got to trust the people that you're giving cases to. And I mean, several people that I've worked with, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I have a client right now because you were on the defense side and you got a call from one of your clients and they said, we need a defense attorney that can do this type of work. And you shot it to me. And that client right now is one of my big clients because of you, yeah. uh, because you trusted me because of the relationships that we had. And as much as we party and as many good times, as many stories we can tell right now, we can literally say when it's time to get down to business, do we it. can do it. And that's what I think UGA Law School is so great about. I mean, think about the people that were in our individual class in the three to five years ahead or behind us. Like, some heavy hitters. Heavy and, hitters. And it's instant credibility with one of your classmates, just the fact that you had those experiences together. 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by the number of people um, that have been successful in our class. And, I mean, the list is, is endless. It's, endless. it's crazy. Yeah. So I said you do med mal defense. Um, that was... Okay, so remind me when you you, you summered interned at some at some big firms and then right out of law school did you go to a like a nursing home defense med mal like how did you, how so I started off um, I did some summers at big firms and thought that wasn't really what was what was for me um, I knew I wanted to litigate I knew I wanted to litigate immediately so I started interviewing for kind of mid level smaller firms that I knew I get in the courtroom quickly so I started off at Inslee and Race which was a small medical malpractice boutique and they did a lot of they did a lot of hospital work and long-term care work. So I kind of started off doing facility work um, and have just kind of morphed into what I do now. Which people can't just dabble in medical malpractice stuff. No. You can't dabble in it. No. Um, I mean, it is, it is a very unique and specialized industry that 
requires you to not only understand how to litigate cases, but it requires you to understand the medicine and be able to get experts and being able to talk to them intelligently. So every new case that I get, you have to learn the medicine. Super complicated. So we, we, we throw these terms around, you know, because we, we know, but for the person out there that's not a lawyer, that's not familiar, like, what, like a medical malpractice case, what's kind of a standard fact pattern that you see or a client that you have? So, I mean, I do a lot of hospital work and facility work. So, I mean, we typically have a client that comes in and has some type of procedures there at the hospital for some reason. And the plaintiff is alleging that the nurses and or the doctor um, negligently provided some form of treatment that then caused some injury. And it's our job to be able to show either that we were not negligent or the cause of the injury was not from the doctor or the healthcare provider's um, actions. And so it's, it's very complicated. Um, there's a lot of different defenses you can bring up in these types of cases. And what it typically comes down to is experts. I mean, who's got the best experts and, um, is there literature out there to support your position or another position? And so you got to do a lot of research. Um, there's a lot of hands on with the nurses. And I tell people all the time, nurse hospital work is so different than doctor work because, with doctor work, you got one doctor, no policies and procedures. It's just medical judgment of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, with facilities, we have Medicare regulations, we have hospital policies and procedures, we have CMS standards, we have community health standards. So all these things we have to navigate through in order to get a defense of the case. And that's the standard of care or the guidelines that a plaintiff's attorney like me would use in going through and say, did you do this, 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 this. You all have a stack of 40 policies and procedures or regulations and our our providers are supposed to follow every single one of them. (laughs) And you mentioned experts. To start a case, an expert has to sign off on affidavit saying that there's a something was wrong here, right? Like pe- people can't just sue a doctor no. without having that support. No, and I, I commend of, of the many things that I commend the legislature for doing, um, you know, in tort reform, they put in a regulation, it's OCGA 911.9.1, that says you have to have an expert affidavit to start a case. So Joe Blow off the street can't say, hey, this guy poked my toe um, and I deserve $10 million. You got to get a doctor, a certified doctor to say, that action on behalf of the doctor um, is legitimate for you to bring a lawsuit. So that has, it's, it was meant to take out the frivolous cases and it has, but good plaintiff's attorneys are able to get around that. I mean, there's, there's doctors out there that'll, they'll say a lot of anything that'll sign off on anything. And and so then in in exchange, you have to have an expert to rebut it, right? I mean, is, is there a situation where you can go forward with a case without having an expert? Absolutely not. I mean, we have to get experts on our side and that's why I say medical malpractice cases are so different because you know, some cases like car accident cases, you don't need all those things. It is extremely expensive to litigate a medical malpractice case. I mean, some of these experts are charging $1,200 an hour to review cases. So just to get in the door for a plaintiff's attorney, I mean, you may be spending 10000 right off the top just to open a case, um, much less defend the case where you got to get multiple experts to talk about standard of care and causation and all these different aspects. So they're extremely expensive. Um, and there's, there's really only, you know, there's, there's, there's a really good handful of people that do it really well. Yeah. And I imagine when you get a case, you're, you're gauging who that lawyer is on the other side and say, okay, this is one of the three or five or whatever one, that know what they're doing. Or this is somebody that this dude does not, or this girl does not need this case. We're one, going to- 100%. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of factors when we first get cases that we look at, but one of the major factors is who's bringing the case. Um, and are they able to take this case from start to finish? Can they fund it? They have the capital, as you said, to hire the experts and do the depositions and sit on it for years and years and years and years. I mean, when you try cases, how long has those cases generally been pending for? So I just tried a case last week that got done, and the case originated in 2016. So there you go. So that's that's six plus years. Um, six, this, six plus experts, seven plus experts. Yeah. I mean, $100,000 have spent, and they've yeah. got to float it. And then... You know, could lose a trial, right? Yeah, if you lose and, a trial. And, and they're going against you, they will lose a trial. Hey, that's that's what we try to do at our firm. Uh, <laughs> not just me, but all of my attorneys. I mean, our goal is defense verdicts, um, and we've been very successful with it. But we're not – I mean, what people understand, just like we understand the players that are in the MedMal community, hopefully through our track record, people understand that when we get cases as well, we're going to – we have the ability to go try a case from start to finish. For sure. Just like there's three or five plaintiff's lawyers, plaintiff's firms, there's three to five, maybe less than that, yeah. truthfully, defense yeah. firms. Y'all are one of them. Yeah. And I'm sure when your name pops up, the plaintiff's lawyer's like, crap. 
crap, crap, crap. That's and, the, and that's that's the what goal. You, that's what you want, that's right? That's the goal. And the way you get that reputation is by doing what you've done for the last 20 years or 17 years, whatever yeah. it is, and that's getting these defense verdicts. I mean, you've tried more cases probably than any, any of our friends. Yeah. I, I would beg no, to. No, no, no. Agreed. But I think, you know, the philosophy of our firm is we have to foster the younger folks that are coming up. So when we have files, I mean, you'll see when, when Scott and Dan and PK and, and Anna and all these folks go and try cases, I mean, we're bringing younger folks with us because we understand we don't want to do this forever. Just like you don't want to do this forever. You want to take care of your family. Um, so we have a bunch of younger folks. So it's our goal to continue to foster these younger folks to be able to try cases and litigate cases and understand what it takes, you know, to diligently, effectively um, get defense. And that's hard to do when such I mean, there's so much on stake, so much on the line. These are big cases. These aren't like soft tissue, neck, back. Like people are badly, badly injured or dead. People are um, asking for, I mean, one of the trials we just did in November, I mean, they asked for $200 million. $200 million. Yeah. So how, <laughs> how, how, how do you incorporate a younger lawyer? To, and that, it's hard. I mean, the biggest thing is you got to trust your folks. I mean, you got you got to know that you've trained them the right way, that they have the same... Um, diligence that you do and they have the same desire that you do to want to get defense verdicts. But the hardest part, Josh, I'll tell you, is convincing your client to allow younger folks to do it. Um, and we eat a lot of we eat a lot of fees all the time by bringing younger folks to trials because we know they're not going to pay for them. But yeah, they hire Brian Mathis. They want Brian Mathis soup to nuts doing the work because they've That's got it. confidence in Brian Mathis. Brian Mathis cannot be everywhere every time. That's it. You've got tons and tons of files every one of which they want you. Yeah. And I mean, and I'll tell you, I mean, in growing a business and growing your practice, that's probably been the hardest part that I've had to understand and try to navigate is how to deal with client expectations on cases. And once you're able to, if, if someone can figure that out and let me know, somebody please email me. Um, Josh will put my email address on there, but please email me and tell me how to do that. But we do, we do the best that we can. I mean, I will tell you, I have... I have a great team of people around me um, that starts with my family. It starts with the people that work with me. And the, the, the thing that I've always told everybody is my success is not me. My success has absolutely nothing to do with me. I can go try the cases, but as you know, Josh, in, in working up a case, you got you to gotta have a bunch of people there that are doing a lot of other stuff other than you. So I never, ever, I am very humbled by my team. I am very humbled by the success but I will never, ever take credit for anything that I do. It's, it's the people around me and the team that works with me. And if you can surround yourself with the right people that are as hardworking and care as much as you do, you will be successful. You're very modest. That's why people want to work hard for you and do well for you, though, because I'm sure you show them the love and the appreciation. And that's, that's what sets up the tools for success. I mean, that $200 million, if I remember correctly, against your client, they gave them zero. Zero. <laughs> Zero, which is a whole lot less than 200. Um, as we sit here today, you just told me that you're supposed to go to trial on Monday, and now it's my push later in the month. But, like, you are literally in and out of courtrooms. So how, how do you – the Med-Mount trials are longer than, than my trials. Mine are usually two or three days, maybe right. five. Right. Y'all's can be weeks and weeks. How do you train your body, your mind? How do you manage being in trial for that long? So I, I think it starts with understanding what – practice you're in. I mean, we understand and my wife understands and I'm teaching my kids, my seven-year-old understands that, you know, this is part of the business. I mean, this is part of what we do. So mentally you have to prepare yourself I mean, your family has to prepare. If you know, you're going to be on trial for three weeks, you got to know that, you know, my wife's got to take care of all the kid duties. I mean, I'm not going to be at soccer practice. I'm not going to be at drop-offs. I'm not going to be at pickups and you just got to navigate it. Um, so you, you, you just have to, it's all about planning and it's all about expectation. So I, I believe in the fact that if you know what you have to deal with, you can get through it. But I mean, it's a lot of nights. I'll tell you, there's a lot of plaintiff's attorneys. I, I, I've heard this many times that said, I don't know how y'all do what you do. I mean, y'all stay up, you know, y'all get four hours of sleep a night, preparing for what's going on and some people just say i just don't have i don't have the stamina i don't have i don't have the energy to do what you got to do i, I don't yeah. <laughs> i'll be honest i mean I, the longest case i've tried went into a second week yeah. it was like nine work days i was absolutely gassed exhausted and i'm not looking forward to do it again <laughs> if i'm being completely honest with you no i know uh my trials are 
three days. Yeah. That's the sweet spot. I feel good about it. Um, but you're right. It takes a special person. So what is your, like, um, what's the schedule like? I mean, court starts 830 or 9, different judges go to 4, 5, whatever. Like, what's the schedule like? So typically with our cases where, you know, it's 830 or 9 to 5 or 6, depending on what judge you have, depending on where you are. If you're out, you know, sometimes if you're out of town, it's a little bit better because you don't have family situations. Right by the hotel, back to yeah, the war room. Go back to the hu- yeah, go back to the hotel. You try to get a bite to eat. Um, and then you start on the next day. And with, with facility cases, um, with nurses, you got to go prep them. You know, you got to prep them the night before. So if they're going to call three nurses at night, you got to try to meet with all three nurses. So my schedule typically is I sleep approximately four hours a night during trial. Um, I try to catch up on Saturdays and Sundays, but that's my schedule. And I'm not a coffee drinker, so you just pump through it. Um, And that's just, it is what it is. And I'll say across the board, my firm, that's typically what people do. And I I think that I'm a, a pretty good trial attorney with regards to being able to do that. But I'll tell you, there's some folks in my firm that, I mean, Dan Huff for one, Dan can try cases back to back to back to back. I'm exhausted, just like you were for your three-week trial. It's tough for me to get back on on track, and my family has to understand that just because trial's over, it usually takes me three or four days to get back right um, before I'm able to like have normal conversations because you're just so geeked up about what happened. But some of these folks, and I'm not one of those people, are just able to do this repetitively and and that's just that's just a whole different kind of person and oh by the way you've got your other cases that are still going that's it. on <laughs> that's it they, they don't they don't just they, stop they don't stop they don't just stop so that goes back to your point you said earlier about having making sure you've got a team in place yeah. um to understand that for those three weeks like you don't have time to go mess yeah. with the other stuff i mean and this is the you know the the last two trials is the first time i put an out in office on my on my email um, because I had this thought process before that, like, if I put an out an office on, like, people will stop sending me cases because they know I won't be I won't be there for two weeks. And finally, I just said, enough's enough. Like, you got you got to put the out of office on, and and people understand. And I will say that the plaintiff's bar generally understands that when you're on trial, you know, the two weeks before, the two weeks after, you're kind of because they're looking for the same kind of treatment that's to it. them, yeah, right? 100%. I mean, because that's going to happen to them, and they want to make sure that, that you remember that. Yeah. Um, all right, so I've waited for verdicts to come back both as a plaintiff's lawyer where me being paid was dependent upon the, what the, ju- the jury says. And I can't, even, uh, I can't even begin to fathom that, that, that feeling. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because, you know, for people to say, well, from a defense perspective, what do you really care because you're getting paid either way? Which that used to piss me off. 100%. Say that. 100%. Um, I know it pisses you off, too. It does. Uh, because you, you put in way too much effort. You care too much to say, like, I'm not, it's not going to change what my, 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 my pay is. So what do you feel like the heart's beating you know, you're trying to kill time. That's just a crazy time. I mean, I'll tell you when when the jury's out. Typically, what I'd always try to do is start trying to work on other stuff because if you sit there and you think about every single question, and and inevitably there's going to be questions. I mean, when you have a jury out for more than an hour, there's always questions and there's all this speculation. And I was told, you know, by this famous attorney one time who said. You trying to guess what questions mean is about as dumb as you walking outside and saying, you know, what is it going to do tomorrow? Um, So you got to keep yourself busy, but it's also an opportunity for you to talk to your client. If there's questions that come back and you feel like, oh, that question wasn't a good question for you, you got to go back to your client and say, this may not be going well. Do we need to enter into a high low? Do we need to start talking about negotiations? Um, So there's, I mean, trial doesn't stop when you, when you do your closing. Um, it is a continuous process until you get a verdict in the case. And until you get a verdict, you have no idea what's going on. You can feel as confident as you can. Um, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, negotiations are going on all the time. 100%. You know, and so until that knock comes, like it's still, how about this? How about that? Based on what the question is. 100%. Um, and you, you just never know. I did 10 minutes with Michael Goldberg on this podcast months back where he talked about all the questions that he got that he thought mean he meant he was screwed and it turned out to be great. And then vice versa. He's like, Oh, that question is great for me. And he got zeroed out. So you, you just never know. But in terms of you working with plaintiff's lawyers um, and you can, I don't, you don't sing anybody out, but, yeah. but both in how they develop a case and bring a case and in trial, what are some things that you're like, okay, that's a, a right way to go about it from a plaintiff's perspective. And what are things like, dude, that's just not working. 
So I, I think there's a I think there's again a, a dozen or so plaintiffs attorneys out there that do it the right way, and I I think the advantage of what plaintiffs attorneys have versus defense attorneys is they have the ability to pick their cases. The good def, the good med mal attorneys get good cases, um, and they're able to spend a tremendous amount of time on their cases. So. You know, I try to build great relationships with these plaintiffs' attorneys, but what I see the most that makes plaintiffs' attorneys so successful, it's the same thing that makes defense attorneys. It's preparation. It's preparation, having the right people involved, having the right experts involved, and dil- and, and, and being very intentional about how you litigate your cases. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of times you see inexperienced men, male plaintiffs' attorneys, you know, go out a case, and they don't really know where the end game is. You know, it's, it's, am I going to go left? Am I going to go right? Am I going to go the middle? And when you do it that way, you don't really have a very solidified argument at the end. Um, so I've seen good plaintiff's attorneys know their case. And from the very beginning, they're following path A. And no matter what you do, they're going to go down the yellow brick road and they're going to get to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's what really is effective. And again, I I say this loosely, but there's really only a dozen or so attorneys that are able to um, do it effectively. Yeah. What is your approach towards dealing with opposing counsel? I mean, you said that you try to work well with them, and I know that you do. Not everybody takes that approach. Why why have you chosen to go that direction? You know, the the way I see life, Josh, and and you know this about me, is the legal career is is my job. um, But I want to be remembered at some point. We're all going to be gone from this life. Um, I want to be remembered for for the people that I know, the relationships that I have. Um, I'm on the defense side, so clients call me with terrible cases. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I, I don't get to pick my cases. Um, so if I'm able to deal with them in a professional way, in a very upfront way, I hope everybody who ever deals with me can say, with Brian, if he tells me something, it's true. Um, I don't get paid to, to make up lies. I don't get paid to do anything else. Um, I get paid to litigate what the facts that I have. So um, I try to build great relationships. I think I have really good relationships, even with people that have kicked my ass in court. Um, we can go have a beer. We can go have dinner. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times I've had dinner and drinks with opposing counsel. I mean, I, I know you. I know I'm, I know so many different people on the other side. Um, and I think those relationships help me through cases. And quite frankly, I think sometimes it helps me get good results on my, on my files. Oh, I think it absolutely does. I think that it's the right way to go about it from st- all the reasons that you just, yeah. you just mentioned. And it makes better results for both sides. Like cases that should be settled can be settled. Cases that need to be litigated and tried, that's what you're going to do too. Um, I think you got to just call balls and strikes fairly. That's, that's all anybody can ask for. That's it. You know, and, and if your client gives you a crap case and the facts are what they are, you tell your client, look, this is the case we got resolved and this it's going to be expensive case. and it's going to be all that, but what do you want me to do yeah. now the the med mal cases are different in the sense of, of settlement. There's got to be consent, right? Now is that, is that with hospitals too, or just with doctor? How well, does that work? It, d- it depends on the policy. There's some policies out there that are consent policies or some policies out there that don't require consent. Most of our hospital policies do not require consent. And I'll tell you, I mean, plaintiff's attorneys have gotten smart and they go after hospital clients. I mean, apportionment has helped somewhat because we're not in the joint and several range anymore where we're responsible for everything if there's 1%. Um, but they still go after us because we're we're the deep pockets. we got, you know, hundreds of thousands of, <laughs> of insurance. Right, right. And, and so what, what I mean by that is... Um, you know, in a car wreck case, in a slip and fall case, and they say, well, the general public always hears, well, they're going to just settle it. Right. Too expensive. They're just going to settle it. And what that means, I don't know, 25000 100000 whatever. Med mal cases, that doesn't happen. No. No, I mean, I will tell you that a number of my clients have told me point blank, I would much rather pay you than play the plaintiff's attorney. And I think they have to take that position. If not, they'll get sued by everybody. Everybody. And it goes in their record, right? It goes in their record. And so, you know, their, their, their medical license is too important to not fight for. So National Practitioners Database, back in the day, there was a limit to what you could resolve a case for, and it wouldn't have to be reported. And, of course, there was a bunch of funny business with that because I can't remember what the number was. It was 10 or 15 or whatever the number was. But, you know, people would start settling cases for a dollar less underneath than the yeah. underneath so they the just said, they said screw that we're just going to make it if you resolve a case for any amount 
that's not – I mean, I think, I think there's a small caveat that if it's just attorney's expenses, you don't have to report it. But basically anything now has to be reported. So changes the mindset of doctors, changes the mindset of, of, of practices and, and insurance companies. Do you think that it changes the minds of plaintiff's attorneys too to not necessarily bring some cases? Because I'll be honest, there's some cases that I know people bring because they're like, well, the damages are bad enough that regardless of liability, they're going to put some money on it. I, I think that's a mindset of a lot of attorneys is if uh, I know plenty of attorneys that have told me, plaintiff's attorneys have told me that the damage is all I care about. I'll figure out the liability later. But in MedMal, is that the same? Um, I, I think there's a handful of folks that don't know what they're doing that mm -hmm. still follow that principle. And after about two years of practicing and $100,000, $200,000 in yeah, the Yeah, they're hole, regretting that decision. They regret that decision. Yeah. And then they're they're coming to you saying, give me something. So it's I can, too late. Give me, give me something to recoup my fees. I don't care if, the, and this is sad, I don't care what my client makes, but I need to make my fees back. Yeah, and get my expenses paid. Yeah. And yeah and just put a little bit of something that, on that's, that's not this <laughs> <laughs> so you want to be in. So in terms of like your marketing efforts and, and you know, there's only so many hospitals out there. There's like yeah. so many insurers that, that, that write this stuff. Like how have you gone about creating your little path, to having all this work to do? So I have been very, very diligent over the years with regards to marketing. And I have made, and, and kind of what I said earlier is you have to make a deliberate effort to make time for, for marketing. So I, I go out to eat. I do a lot of marketing efforts, meaning going to facilities, doing stuff for free. Um, and what I tell my team and, and the younger attorneys that I tell people is the first thing you need to do when you become an attorney is learn what the hell you're doing. Um, because you can't market to anybody and you can't get any cases if you don't know what you're doing. So spend the first five or six years being really good at what you do. And you can start doing some marketing, going to meet people. But my wife laughs at me at times because whenever I'm somewhere and I see someone that could potentially be someone that I need to talk to, I go talk to them. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't hold back. I give my card out. I say, Hey, I'm Brian. I work at Huffpal Bailey, like we do medical malpractice. If I'm at a if I'm at a race, if I'm at a soccer game and I hear doctors' names, I will intentionally go over and talk to them. Because inevitably one of those doctors is gonna get sued. And they're gonna say, Oh, I remember that guy from the soccer game mm -hmm. and hell, he works at a really good firm. I'm gonna go call this guy. And maybe it's just advice, maybe it's, hey, this patient just walked in and said blah, 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 what do I do? And you give them advice and you don't do anything. But I am very intentional with regards to marketing. But here's the key, Josh. Insurance companies and new clients want two things. They want to know that you're really good at what you do and that you can go try a case and they want people that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a ton of people that, that are really good at what we do. There's a, there's a ton of good med mal attorneys. I, I don't ever profess to be the best med mal attorney. Um, but if they got to talk to me or Joe Blow next door and they don't really like talking to Joe Blow because he sucks and he can't go to dinner and laugh and talk about their kids and know something about their talk life. Sports and BS. Yeah. Just be normal. Be normal. I mean, you, you'd be surprised. I mean, we talk about it all the time when we were in law school. Like, we don't want to be that dude that like is the is the grouchy attorney that like when you walk in the room, they're like, dude, that guy's an attorney. We want to be the guy that's like, oh, that, that guy's a cool guy. I don't know what he does, yeah. but he's a cool he's guy. He's a cool guy. Oh, by the way, he's he's. Oh, by attorney. the way, he's an attorney. Yeah, and and you know, having a personality like yours, you you, you can't muzzle it, right? Like that's who you are, yeah. and people want to work with people and talk to people that they like. You just, I mean, and I tell people all the time, it's it's really just be normal, dude. Just like have have a good time with people. Like take them to a Braves. Guess what? I want to go to a Braves game. Why don't you go with me? It's not very hard. I got Falcons tickets. Why don't you come with me? Let's go have a beer. Like it's it's really not that difficult. But when people make things uncomfortable and try to push being, you know, being somewhere and being someone's client and pushing and urging and saying I want to be your, just let it happen. Like people are going to need attorneys, man. Just just let just it happen. Let, yeah. I'll call you sometime. People will continue to mess up. People yeah. will continue to need have problems. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Now a lot of my, my a lot of my marketing is done by social media. And I'm envious of you not being all over Facebook and Instagram. How in the hell were you able to do that and teach me because I don't <laughs> want to be on it either? So, I've, I mean, I've known you for a long time and I've never, ever been a social media person. Never. Um, you never have. I, I believe in my life and my family's life being what it is. And I feel like the people that I and this and this is a minority opinion, I will say, I feel like the people that I want to hang out with, I hang out with and I keep up with. And the people that I don't, I don't really care if y'all know about my life. And so I don't, I never have felt the urge and it's probably my upbringing and my mom just saying, Hey, we keep everything within the house. Um, but I've just never felt the urge of telling other people what I want to do. I mean, I, I remember when Ashley was pregnant with, um, Layla and I, 
based on a lot of firm things, but I don't think I told anybody at my firm that she was pregnant until a week before. And the only reason I told her is because I had a trial that started the week that she was, that she was due. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Layla was born on Saturday and I started a three week trial on Monday and I told the people that I worked with on Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, I don't know if she's going to go into labor on Monday. Right. Might need some coverage. I might need some coverage. So I've, j- I've just always been under the opinion that, um, we share what we do with our friends and family and we have ways of sharing that. But me personally, and I have no criticism with regards to anybody else, but I've just always felt like my life is my life and I'll share what I want to share with the people that I want to share. And I don't, I don't need it all over the place. I love it. My brother's not on social media either. Yeah. I mean, he, he never got a Facebook account, um, no Instagram account. He doesn't miss it. You know, um, I do it for work purposes. I get it. I totally um, get it. That, that's where my network is. They've got to see me. Um, I don't spend a lot of time just like scrolling through stuff. I don't find that productive. Yeah. But, but how much time are you saving? Can you, can you imagine adding that to what you're doing? I mean, people I, that just, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I find it funny because I remember Stetson Bennett, they were, they, there was some article on him, um, before the national championship game. And he said he got off of all the Instagram and stuff. And he talked about how much more time he saved by not being on all the social media. And I, I feel the same way. I mean, I just, I feel like my life is literally a bouncy ball of going from work to practice to home to the next event, to the next call, to this. And I can't imagine um, having something else with social media. I, mean, I always read enough, enough Bleacher Report and ESPN on my phone. Um, so that's that's enough for me. But I, that's, I just can't imagine having any more than that. And and then just, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you Josh, there was, my, my wife was on social media at one point and I had a plaintiff tell me during a deposition, I mean, she had all the information about my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and she, you know, I took a very effective deposition and she called at the end of the deposition, she started reciting things about my life. This is the plaintiff, the plaintiff. Wow. Wow. And it freaked me the hell out. Sure. Um, and I remember getting in the car that day and I said, no more social media for the family. Um, because she knew things. I mean, it's just, again, like, where my kid went to school and what, you know, what we did last weekend. And, and we didn't, we don't post a lot of stuff, but the fact that she knew anything about my life, this random stranger, um, and I had to go get a court order, um, that, cause she was threatening me. I mean, yeah. she was, she was saying something about my family. So, I mean, that is another factor in why I just don't feel the, the need to be on that type yeah, of stuff. Yeah. With what we do, you can run into some crazy people like that. That's it. That's and, it. And, man. and if, you know, if she's thinking that, you know, you're standing in the way of, of her getting some money and you're treating her bad at deposition, which you weren't, of course, of course but, yeah, yeah. but you know, that's what she thinks. Like people are freaking crazy, people, man. So. People are nuts. And you, I mean, you know, I mean, you've seen people, people come to your office and ask for you to represent them and you're like, this may be a really good case, but I just can't deal can't with it. the other stuff. Can't do it. Well, your lack of social media time gives you time to focus on the Falcons. <laughs> it does. You're a Falcons man. Oh, my God. Uh, I, can't, I can't even tell you how much of a Falcons guy I am. You're the biggest Falcons fan I know. You <laughs> well, and my dad. I appreciate that. You and my dad. Okay. The two biggest Falcons fans I know. Um, it's hard being a Falcons fan. It, it, you is, have, you, it is extremely You have difficult. made your way. We still text on Sundays. I know you're watching, <laughs> and you stay positive and – uh, I, I, I just <laughs> always think Josh and, and we laugh. I mean, literally almost every Sunday we laugh. Um, I just think that just like life, I mean, you got to go through the hard times to get, to get to the good times. Um, a lot of hard times. And there's, man. there's been a hell of a lot of hard times, but I will tell you, I think the new regime at, at, you know, in Atlanta is really turning the corner from your mouth to God's ears. Um, <laughs> I think, I think our coach is good. I think Smith is good. I do too. I do. Um, Fontenot, we'll see. Um, I think he's legit. I think he's. I think he's good. I think that if I'm Arthur Blank, he's what eighty five, eighty whatever. God, like, yeah, he ain't got that much more. Sorry, no. sorry, Mister Blank. No, Father Time's undefeated. Like, let's just let's just go for it. Yeah, and and, and to Mister Blank's point, I we appreciate all that you've done for Atlanta. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we got to go for it. I mean, I think. I mean, the, the last three drafts have really been um, a testament to where I think we want to go with the game and where we want to go with our team. And and quite frankly, I, I think Fontenot, with what he did last year, with – I mean, we were, we essentially had a JV team last year, let's be honest. Uh, $50 million under the – cap. I mean, $50 million in dead cap space money. Um, we were playing with and, – and people are going to hate me for saying this – I think one of the worst quarterbacks in the league with Marcus Mariota – 
um, who can't throw the ball down more than 20 yards down the field. The fact that we were seven and five, I mean, seven and 10 last year is amazing when we were, you know, I, th- I think at the beginning of the season, they said we we're going to win two games. You took you took the words out of my mouth. For us to win seven games last year. Oh, it's unreal. It was unreal. Uh, unreal. And we lost, I mean, I think I saw some stats that like we lost another like four to five games by less than three points. You know, we could have won more. I mean, which I think that goes back to what we were saying that Arthur Smith um, did the best he could with what he has. And so, so we'll see. Um, you know, we've gone offense, offense, offense with, with top ten picks the last three years. Some would say that's great, but to do all that, you should have a quarterback that they get the ball, get, get the ball to these guys, um, which I can't disagree with. So what are your thoughts on the quarterback position? So, I, so I'll start off by saying with, with regards to offense, 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 I think this is the first offseason where we focused in on defense. I mean, Free agency, sure. I mean, free agency has been incredible. I mean, Calais Campbell, I don't know how many of y'all folks know him, he is a giant of a man, um, and he is extremely smart, and I think he's going to teach some of the younger guys on our team how to play um, and how to be on the defensive line. Um, with regards to our draft, I love it. I mean, I think – You're Team Bijan? Team Bijan. Um, now, if you would have asked me draft night, um, whether I was happy with the pick, I don't know what I would have said. Um, I did ask you. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> I think you said you liked it. You said you said Bijan's going to be a beast. He I think is which, be was beast. your word. Yeah. You said tough to pass on Carter. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And so here, here's what I think. I mean, when I was when I was sitting there during, during the draft, I said you have Tyler Algier who had a hell of a season last year, thousand plus yards. We still have Cordell Patterson who's kind of our flank, catch the ball out of the backfield. We still have him under contract. You know, why are we getting this other running back? But the more and more I've watched tape over the past two to three days, this dude's a beast. Saquon Barkley. He's Saquon Barkley. Yeah, he's going to be a beast. He's going to be great. Um, his interview, I don't know if you saw it. I did. It was great. I mean, I mean he, he, top notch. Top notch. And they talked to him before the draft, Susie Colber did. And I'm like, that dude gets it. Gets that dude it. gets it. And I think he just won the room over. Yeah. And, and you know, as a Georgia guy, of course, Jalen Carter, Jalen Carter, Jalen Carter, if he's there, you got to take him. And I think that was the Falcons' worst nightmare Yeah, for him to be available. For him to be there. They, they, they were probably like, we want Bijan. Um, he's our guy. Yeah. Please, Carter, be not gone. be there. But, I, but, but to that point is, hey, man, I watched, I watched the majority of Georgia games over the past three years, and the dude's a monster. I mean, Jalen's a, a, he's a great player. Um, but I have to think that you know, seven teams passed on him before we got to him. Um, and while he was touted to be kind of number one guy and that guy, there's a reason. So I, I, ho- I hope for the best of them. I, I, every Georgia player, now that they're all in the Eagles. Uh, the, the Philly dogs. <laughs> the Philly dogs. I mean, I hope they all kill it. I mean, honestly, and I, and I hope Bijan kills it as well. But I think going out and getting all the defense that we got over, you know, over the offseason the pre- and the free agency and focusing in on – Offense and being able to do this two back set. I mean, we don't we don't really have legitimate receivers. Um, so what I anticipate is going to be Bijan and Algier in the back or Cordell in the back, and you're going to have to figure out where the hell they're going to be and have Pitts on the outside and London on the outside, and you got to figure it out. And I think with a better defense, you get the ball more often, and the more opportunities you get for those guys to make plays. Um, the more points we're going to put on the fee- on on the board. A lot to be excited about if Ritter can come through. Big if, but I think you, he's you, legit. You like him? I like him. Okay. Uh, and and the only thing that I can go by is track record and 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 leadership. I I think I think great players are built by leadership. And he has at University of Cincinnati, dude was a leader. I mean, he was. I mean, and I saw him play in that game. What was it, the Peach Bowl or something mm-hmm. against, against Georgia? Georgia? Yeah, he killed it. I mean, they lost, but, I mean, to be against, what, the number one defense during that time and kill it, I mean, the guy just needed a chance. And sitting, but, I mean, I hate it for him that he was behind Mariota and didn't get any freaking guidance um, or any mentorship. But, I mean, the four games that he played, he got better every game. And quite frankly, you got Bijan and, and Cordell and, and Algier in the back and Pitts. You got to remember, Pitts was hurt for 
three fourths of the season last year, so you didn't have that. Huge yeah, and the target. entire the entire time with Ritter. Yeah, you know, I, I think about the, the teams that Smith put together in Tennessee. I mean, Tannehill wasn't all world. Shit, but, but, he, ma- but he, he made he him made a him, Pro Bowl. Yeah, he made him a Pro Bowler. So, <laughs> so that's what we could do. Now, now, you be, but the Falcons goes back forever. I mean, you and your mom going to games growing up. So like, let me tell you where it started. It started there was a lady in my neighborhood who was the marketing director for the Falcons. I used to cut her grass. So I okay. used to used to cut grass to make money on the side. And she loved me. You know, I'd go out, I'd do all the stuff. Who doesn't love you, by the way? And I was, I mean, dude, I was making like 10 bucks a yard to cut it. And she came out one day and she's like, do you like the Falcons? It's like, are you joking? Like, (laughs) there's a bear pee in the woods. Yeah. Um, And I said, of course. And she's like, I work for the Falcons. I'm the marketing director and they have a ball boy position available. And I was like, what are you talking about? So she's like, do you want to come be a ball boy for the Falcons? So it's like, hell yeah, I want to be. So for from my sophomore, junior and senior seasons, I was a ball boy for the Falcons. And it was, I will tell you the best job I've ever had in my whole life. That was it. I mean, from the beginning of preseason until the end of the season, um, you know, we traveled, I did two games. I traveled with the team, but every practice, um, every home game. And that was the time when Terrence Mathis was there. So everybody just assumed that was my dad. Right. Like, right. Could I, no. <laughs> right. So what, what were the responsibilities of the ball boy? What were you doing? So, I mean, from everything. So you got, you got to practice. So we stayed, that was when they were in Swanee. So we stayed up there with them. So we ate three meals a day with all the players. So you had to be down there before practice set up all the stuff for practice, be there during practice. So the shitty part about it was then we had to like clean up all their crap afterwards, all their pads. In real time, you're loving that. Oh, Who dude, cares? Let, let me tell you, dude, it was the best job. And the coolest part, I remember Eric Metcalf was with the Falcons during that time. And mm-hmm. he's a small guy. Um, and so he had, everybody's got contracts with different companies. He had a contract with Nike. So during preseason, they give you a certain amount of money. So you got to spend like $10,000 or you lose it. So use it or lose it. Sweet. And then during the season, you get like $50,000, <laughs> use it or lose it. So he wasn't a big – I mean, he, he could care less about this stuff. So he was like, ball boys, here's the magazine. Go through the magazine, order whatever you nice. want. So we had – I mean, Josh, I must Gear have, upon gear upon gear. Dude, I mean, I had – I must have had 40 pairs – of Nikes. I noticed your Nikes you're wearing when you walked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't go unnoticed to me. (laughs) So, you know, obviously obviously I'm a shoe guy, but, (laughs) um, but I mean, it was fantastic. And the, I mean, we didn't make a lot of money from the actual jobs, but you gotta remember these guys are, these guys are, they'll be like, Hey, I forgot my gloves in the locker room, go run and get it. And then they'd hand you 200 bucks. Throw you some cash. Um, and it was, I mean, being around those guys and I'll tell you my love for NFL football comes from seeing these guys transform from being normal guys like at practice to turning into absolute monsters. Beasts on the I mean, on Sundays. I feel. People that you – they wouldn't even talk to you. They wouldn't even recognize you when they get in this mode of, like, game time. And I was the dude wearing the X on the field. So I was on the line of scrimmage of every single game. I saw, you know, Dion back in the day. I was – I mean, it was it was fan, it was the best job in the world. Do you think you've taken some of that with you, like, walking into the courtroom? 1,000%. Yeah, I mean – I think the mentality of knowing when it's game time, you're able to turn on a different mode and a different level. I think 100% I've gained that from all the experiences I've had in life and knowing the success that some of these football players had by being able to be normal. I mean, joke around with you at practice, be, you know, throwing balls with you and betting that you can't, you know, walk with them for 10 yards. I remember Jamal Anderson said, if you can carry me, this is his rookie year, if you can carry me 10 yards on your back, I'll give you $10,000. And I mean, we we all tried, yeah. uh, but we didn't do it. Walked with herniated discs afterwards. Yeah, exactly. But, other than that, exactly. You know? but, but I mean, those are the experiences that like you take with you, and it, you. I mean, everything you do now, you think about those things and where you started and where you are now. And I'll just say, like, I always feel grateful and humble for all the people that have helped me along the way and have said, "Hey, man, you're not the you're not the fastest guy. You're not the best guy in the world. But like, if you work really hard." At whatever you do, you can be successful. I love it. Well, speaking of speed and strength, all this kind of stuff, talk to me about your current workout regimen because you still got it, dude. You still got it. <laughs> so we have. So I. So you know, I'm a big Peloton guy. Yeah. Um. So I try to get my cardio through Peloton, but I mean, I just. I mean, it's it's very very difficult, Josh. You know, I mean, it's it's eating right. It's trying to get some type of workout in when you can, and it, I mean. When you're on trial, I, I do like trial because I tell people like it's kind of your diet. Like you can't really eat, can't really do anything. So I always typically lose like seven or eight pounds during during trial. But yeah. I mean, you just gotta stay diligent. I mean, it's it's tough, and 
it's a it's hard to do, but really just kind of having the the mindset of I can't eat shitty foods. Um, I gotta kind of stay with it. Um, and then kind of do something. I mean, I, during soccer practice, I try to go to my girl's soccer practice. Yeah. I'll run. You'll go for a run. I'll go yeah. for a run. Yeah. Um, I just think it's interesting how workouts evolve and change over the years. Because we used to go to this the Ramsey Center, they call yeah. it, Georgia. Just, just weights, weights. Just you know, kill it. Just meathead out. Like, I mean, just, just, just pumping the pipes and bench press. Do you remember the guy who was the um, forest, forest, the MMA fighter? Oh, yeah. Remember yeah. we used to go to the gym and that guy, he was a police officer. He was and wearing like garden gloves. He's wearing, and, just, <laughs> and he was just in there, just throwing just up weight. Throwing up and we're weight. like, "What is this? Dude? Why does he have black eyes?" And then we go on the, we turn on the TV one night. And there he is. And there he is. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely evolved. I mean, it's more of cardio right now. I mean, I could care less about getting big and bulky. Um, try to slim down. Try to do as much as I can. Eat right and and drink as much damn water as I can. I mean, that's the hardest part. That's important. Um, I go in waves. Like I do Peloton also. Uh, I'll stop lifting for a while and I want to get back on. Yeah, it. Like, yeah. I, like I still enjoy yeah. lifting weights. You know I mean? I, I don't care about, you know, the, the beach muscles anymore. Um, well, I have a YMCA yeah. membership. So I'm, I hit the YMCA and see like, it makes me feel better to see normal people. Like if I, I used to go to like world gym and Gold's gym and all those places, but those dudes are just different level. It's a different level. Different level. So now I go to the YMCA and I see like dads. <laughs> I, I'm like, competition. I feel good I with, with them. I, I feel good with you. Yeah, yeah. So good. So good. Man, this was awesome. An hour just completely flew by. Um, I'd keep going, but I'm told that an hour is what everybody <laughs> wants to limit these things to, or else we'd go Joe Rogan Forever. style three hours. But uh, what did we miss? I mean, we missed, you know, but I think we hit. No, I think we hit everything. I mean, I, I'm so grateful that you asked me to come on this podcast. I'm so grateful that we are still where we are. And, it's funny because I mean we sometimes we go weeks or months without talking and, and as soon as we get back together it's just like it literally is like we're back in law school so yeah, totally. I appreciate that about you I'm I'm proud that um, I've seen your success and I've seen where we were in law school and the, the kids that we were to the people that we are now of raising families and I'm you know your kids are amazing and your wife's amazing and you've just built this amazing new office um, here right next to the battery so I'm I'm just you know, I always feel proud to see my friends doing well, and um, I, I just think you've done it the right way. And as you say about me, like I think when you do things the right way, success will come. Mm-hmm. Um, you've always been a hard worker. I always gravitate to people that have the same mindset that I do, and you and Tom and Pedigo and Rice and all those folks that we dealt with during that time period, I think we all shared the same tenacity to want to be great. Um, I tell my daughters every every morning, be great. That's the last two where I say I love okay. you and be great. Nice. Okay. Um, and that's what they I take. That's what they take with them every every day that they walk out of school. And I think you've been be great. You've been the picture perfect of being great. And I, I just I'm glad we're friends, man. And I appreciate you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that's very very kind of you to say and heartfelt. <laughs> Thank you. We did okay for ourselves. We did all you right. Know, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know if Professor Dupree would have thought that when, know, I, when I, I got called on that day. I remember having a conversation where we were sitting in one of the classes and do you remember when like spider solitaire was yes, big and we'd be, we'd be screwing around when the when the teachers do whatever and we had we had that was like laptops we were had new laptops. back then yeah, yeah. that was like the Brand first new. time when you would you'd have to bring a computer 100%. to class and so we had these laptops we don't know what we're supposed to do with them yeah. other than like play Solitaire, or or we were IMing back and I, forth. That's an IM. We were too. IMing back and that's forth, right. and you'd say something, and it'd be on a group chat, and everybody would start laughing. That's, there was, and we I, were pop, we were all over the room doing IMs. And it was crazy. That was the that was the original form of text message. That was what? That's exactly right. And I remember thinking about, thinking ourselves in twenty years, we're going to say somehow we ended up okay. I mean, I don't I don't think anybody would have ever thought that. I mean, I think I think we all knew we were going to be successful, but to see the amount of success and the group that we had. I, mean, I remember Jeff Shiver. I mean, he's you know we everybody knows Jeff Shiver, and I mean we we were just in this pack of play hard, you know, work hard, yep. and we've really taken that to a whole nother level. And you know, to see our families the way that they are, it's just it, it, it truly is humbling and just amazing. Well, that's awesome. Keep doing your stuff, man. Thanks, man. Keep being great. <laughs> you are great. Keep being great. Past, present, and future. All right. So people listening, they want to find you. Um, website, firm, email address, phone number, whatever. Uh, so best way to reach me is obviously um, at my firm because I don't have social I'm media. I'm say not on Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> um, but it's just bmathis at huffpalbailey.com. And 
I'm always there. I always get messages. And I'm to, regardless of who you are, if you have a question, if you have a concern, if you just need some advice about something, I'm always open ears and always willing to help. And luckily, I know great people like Josh and some other folks. So if you need um, some guidance on accidents or things that happen in your life, personal injury, um, please give me a shout and I'll, I'll get you in touch with the right people. So um, I appreciate you, Josh. I mean, I, I can't say it more than um, more than that, but I appreciate you and 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 the fam. And I, I would tell a funny story about Dana and our um, vanilla vodka, but I'll I'll keep that for another time. So that was that was a text <laughs> message we sent today. You know, I, I always I always like to put drinks together for for folks, and I'm like, what can I get for my man B Mathis? And remember that you and Danny love vanilla vodka, and was it Coke or Diet Coke? It was it was or Coke. Was it, Coke, yeah. And do so. You remember the story that happened? You were gone to something, and you were like, "Just come." And Josh took me under his wings when I first got to Georgia, because um, I didn't know a single person. And I remember him saying, "Hey, come over to my house." And you were late that day, and Dana was there, and we had she had like a bottle of vanilla vodka, and we we were there for like two hours without you. And by the time you got there, the the, bo- the bottle was yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah. And we were blitzed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I was I was hoping we could we could do that again. It's hard to find now vanilla yeah, vodka. I don't have it anymore. The guy was funny because he he went down the, the aisle and every flavor you can imagine, <laughs> lime and blueberry and pomegranate and this. He's like, we have no vanilla. I'm like, well, damn. So, <laughs> well, tell Dana I said hi. Well, if Dana ever leaves me, it's going to be for you. So, you know. <laughs> she's a, she's amazing. So um, I'm uh, your family is fantastic. And I always get updates from Erica, um, one of the other partners at our firm, who's fantastic. Um, she always gives me updates cause she sees y'all at the baseball field. Um, so I appreciate her for giving me updates, but keep, Shout out Erica. keep doing what you're doing, man. Um, you're blessed. You're, you're special, man. Keep, keep helping everybody. And this is truly a gift for you. I knew from day one that you weren't going to be a defense firm guy. <laughs> I still got a good bit though. <laughs> you did, but I knew you were, I mean, your personality and you wanting to help people. I mean, you're, you're the perfect person to do what you do. So um, keep doing what you're doing, man. I'm proud of you. And uh, thank you for having me today. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Good stuff. And thank you all for listening. I, you know, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. <laughs> we're going to do, we're going to do this one again. It won't be 60 more though until we do it again. I promise you that. So thank you all for listening. Find old episodes at sportsstores.com. Put this one in your favorites. It can be one of my favorites. And you know what? And also keep chopping and be great. Be See great. you guys. Uh, take care.